Greetings and salutations, dear listener, and welcome to a subdued holiday episode of Indiscretions, the podcast for the politics of discretion. As always, I am your host, Catherine Emily. And this is the last episode of the show that I'm going to do before Christmas. Maybe we'll get another one later next week if I'm feeling ambitious, but recording these kinds of things gets a little difficult when you're in a small house stuffed to the gills with rowdy family members. And my gift to you is that we're going to take a more casual approach to this podcast today and hit some bullet point ideas rather than do a more deep dive into political theory. Unless you work for the NSA or a spyware malware company, you are not familiar with the contents of my computer desktop. And lodged on the right-hand corner of the screen is a sticky note that contains many bulleted ideas for things that strike me as being worthy of discussion and exploration and need to be given a little bit more thought. Sometimes I develop these further into columns, sometimes they just sit there for months on end. And today we're going to take a voyage of exploration and run down some of the things that are on this list and see what we can find to talk about extemporaneously. So here we go. Way down at the bottom, I've left myself a little note that says why government shouldn't be run like a business. And for context's sake, this is something that struck me in a graduate course on political reform that I took last spring. And we were reading an article that made a case that government should be run like a business because businesses are generally efficient and accomplish the ends they set out to achieve, unlike government, which is a fractious mess and is insolvent to boot. And usually business, at least good business, can budget. And I think we all know that government clearly can't budget as we're looking at potentially another government shutdown, which is what, at, at least the 10th over the, the course of the past uh, couple years. Uh, so clearly government doesn't necessarily know how to manage, whereas business often knows how to manage. And this is a case that people on the right, and particularly conservatives, make. This was the basis for Mitt Romney's campaign, was he had business acumen, he knew how to manage, elect me to be president so I can sort some of this mess out. But this strikes me as perhaps not the best direction to move towards because government is not a business. It has a totally different purpose and structure. And whereas business has a specific end in mind that it's supposed to move towards and everything that a business done is unifying around production of a particular good or service or a selection of good goods and services, government can't operate from this same idea of, of having a definite end in mind. The whole purpose of the legislative branch is that you have people with different ideas who come in and who debate and who reach a consensus on what we should do, but that doesn't mean that that is the absolute final judgment that means this is now correct and nobody ever get gets to disagree with that, right? There's still the idea that minorities still have a say, minorities still have rights regardless of what 
direction public policy moves in. And, and this is different than business, which runs a little bit more like a dictatorship, because again, business has a very specific end in mind and everything that it does is oriented around that point. And it is different for a businessman to dismiss people with differing ideas than it is for government to dismiss people with differing ideas. And I am 100% pro-business, but here's the thing. Business is a productive act and it requires reason. The reason and judgment of the individual who channels passion through talent and creates a product of value and then markets that value. Right, business owners have to constantly make cost-benefit analyses and value judgments to ensure the success of their product and their business. They take an idea and they pull it from the ether of their imagination and bring it into being. And as they're doing so, they're constantly re-evaluating re what they need to do in order to be successful and constantly re-evaluating re what they need to do in terms of the free market. and the invisible hand of that free market and where is public opinion and what does our customer base want and that sort of thing. And government can't do any of those things because first and foremost, government is not a producer. It has to take everything that it gives, right? The money that funds public pro programs comes primarily from taxpayers which means that there's an imposition placed on one citizen if another is to have an advantage. And this is particularly true when we start talking about things like welfare programs. And it's impossible for a citizenry to be at parity, to be viewed equally in the eyes of the law when government takes the money of one citizen and gives it to another because this is essentially saying that the needs of one person are more important than the needs of another. And when that's the case, individual sovereignty is not respected. Government doesn't respect the rights of the citizen as something held inviolably by the individual. It's determining who is entitled to what on the, pace, on the basis of value judgment. And whereas we want business to make value judgments because we want producers to determine whether or not they are making a good um, product, whether or not they are serving their customer base and whether or not there are things they can do to, to um, grow their business to serve consumers better, we don't want politicians to have that same kind of freedom to think and act for themselves, and most importantly, to act on their own decisions. And when government does things like um, pursue policy that specifically looks to ameliorate certain needs and ends up taking from one group of citizens in order to give to another, it in powers politicians to focus policy not on a standard that is equally applied to all citizens, but it empowers politicians to feel and to think for themselves and to proactively use law as a tool to help those groups whose tales they find particularly striking. And essentially, it allows politicians to play favorites. 
And even when this is done with what seems like good intentions, such as a genuine desire to help those who can't help themselves, it has the effect of undermining rule of law. Because politicians don't see rights that need to be respected, they see needs. And in servicing those needs, they're helping themselves and not just their constituents. They're essentially becoming service providers and are more enriched by catering to the needs of a particular interest group than they are in just crafting public policy that respects the sovereignly held rights of individuals. And in that sense, government actually does function like a business. When you find a grocery store that you like, it has an easy to navigate layout, the prices are good, the people are friendly, all those kinds of considerations, you go back there because you know what kind of experience you're going to have and it's one that's genuinely positive and you want to reward the people who have served you well. And when government starts to service need, it develops that same kind of relationship. But with government comes dependency. You start to cultivate an attitude of politicians who service the needs of particular interest groups of, well, we provided for you, and now you owe your loyalty to us, so you will continue to support us. And there's no way to walk away from a government and from politicians who start to behave that way in the same way there is from a business that takes a dramatic downturn and no longer meets your needs. Because even if you can get a, pri- a particular politician out of office, it's much more difficult to remove the laws that they've created and which have presumably warped the fabric of government and made it easier for them to be service providers and empowered politicians to service particular needs in the desire not just to help people, but to help themselves as well. And private business is based on value-to-value transactions, which empowers the individual by allowing them to seek out a good or service that meets their need, or to seek out a business that shares their values and to promote those values by supporting that business and raising it up in the world. But value-for-value transactions in government don't work the same way, right? This is the idea of a certain politician helps you, and you turn around and continue to vote that politician into office so that they can continue to help you in future. This is not a relationship that does anything to empower the individual. In fact, it makes them dependent. And you don't want politicians to see you as something from which something can be gotten. You want them to see you particularly as a rights holder and nothing more. And you want them to write policy in a way that respects those rights, which creates a space in society that allows you to make your own decisions and to pursue your own ends and values in whatever way you deem appropriate. You don't want to be beholden to government, which is saying that we'll pursue your ends, but only in the way that we determine to be appropriate. And that's what you have when government attempts to legislate values. It restricts your choices and your ability to even make judgments for yourself. So no, government shouldn't be run like a business because there are different purposes to each. Business relies on discretion, the discretion of the consumer and the discretion of the business owner. A business essentially rises or falls on the judgment of the person who runs the business. 
and you don't want the same thing to be true of government. History shows us what happens when one person's judgment or one person's values are the center of government. The rest of the people are oppressed. And this is what monarchy was pre-Magna Carta. And what Magna Carta does is takes a step back from that and says, we need to recognize that there is a sense of right and wrong that is more of a universal constant. It's more of an absolute than whatever the king decrees the right thing to be from day to day. And it can hinge with his mood from day to day. And men have a right to be governed by this more empiric sense of right or wrong rather than to be held to enthrall to the judgment of the king which means that government needs to be limited so men can make choices for themselves and live by their own discernment and not the king's. And let's be really frank about this. This means more people are going to make bad choices, but at least they're making their own choices. And they then have the responsibility to, to live with the consequences of those and adjust their thinking so they make better choices in the future. But that, in the long run, is better than living or dying based on someone else's choices, even if you end up making more of the wrong choices for yourself. At least that is a very boiled down version of the ideas that underlie Western political epistemology. So let's keep that wall between business and government high, because the private and public realms are separate for a reason. They're based on totally different pre precepts. And the private world of business only exists because government is constrained and it does not allow empowered officials to make judgments for others. You take the principles of business and apply them to government and you get rid of the private sector. You pretty much just have the public sector and you have politicians legislating morality and taking it upon themselves to provide for others and to run the lives of others, which means no one is running their own lives, which means that you're not going to have the same kind of freedom and discretion that you would have in a free market anyway. Okay, so that's why government should not be run like a business. And clearly what we're learning here is I'm unable to do anything briefly. Uh, that's just one bullet point. So let's move on to another, which I'm clearly going to quickly turn into a treatise. But this is an idea I've been thinking about quite a lot lately. And it's about the internal and external divide between the self and the rest of the world. And whether government's actions respect this. And by this, I mean your internal self is your conscience. It's the niggling little voice in your head that tells you maybe you shouldn't have that extra helping of ice cream right before bed, or helps you make a decision about which cough medicine to buy, or makes you well up when you see the story on the news about someone paying off someone's Christmas layaway. So it's reason and emotion and all of the things you think and feel instinctually inside of you, but don't necessarily express outwards into others, at least not at first. And this is one of the really important elements to this idea of an internal self. It precedes your external self. Because your external self then is all of those things that you've been cogitating or ruminating or contemplating or any other number of verbs with this connotation. 
and then taking and giving voice to them publicly. It's writing an editorial, or publishing a podcast, or having a conversation with a friend, or something more mundane like choosing how you communicate with a stranger in the real world. Do you flip off the person who cuts you off in traffic, or does your more rational self step in and tell you that that doesn't solve anything and potentially opens you up to an incident of road rage, which just doubles your problems? Are you in a real rush to get out of the grocery store, or do you let the person with that one item in front of you step ahead of you? There are cost-benefit analyses that need to be made in any number of situations. And the basic question behind them is, do you have a primarily emotional response or a primarily rational response? And you have to debate this internally and then act upon it. And obviously the context of the situation dictates more particularly how you're going to act, but the fundamental question is reason or emotion. Now, government generally has a mandate only to regulate ex your external self, right? Government, at least, again, in the sense of Western political epistemology, exists to preserve your rights, to make sure that no one else's actions infringe upon your freedoms. And this means that government is really only concerned with actions and the consequences that actions have and really only specific actions, only those actions that impede others. Otherwise, government doesn't really have any business telling you what to do. But regulating certain external actions can actually impede your internal self. And here I'm particularly concerned with actions that regulate and modify certain behaviors. Because when you have a public judgment about the unfitness or speech or action, by implication, you're saying that certain types of thought are unfit. Because all action is preceded by thought, and all speech is preceded by thought. And when we're talking about these kinds of regulations, we need to separate intentions from effects because there's a lot of public policy that seems like it makes good sense. For example, for example, smoking is bad for you, so we should ban smoking. But this involves government intruding into areas where it doesn't have any legitimacy to do so. Because again, here we have government making value judgments. And as we just talked about, this isn't good for individuals when government takes it upon itself to do this, because it means that individuals lose the ability to make value judgments for themselves. And certainly, most government charters don't grant their agencies the power to ban smoking in private spaces like restaurants, but government does so anyway, claiming there's an overriding public interest that is part of its basic mandate and gives it powers beyond those specifically given or denied it by its charter. Now, private businesses do have the right to control the spaces they own, so if they want to ban smoking, that's another matter, and you can go find another restaurant with a different policy if you don't like that. But government regulations are much harder to escape, at least not without serious legal consequences. And beyond the veil of force behind which government hides, is this problem of morally grounded legislation. And let's call it for what it is, an attempt to control you. Government bans on smoking do not respect your right to make your own private choices about how to live your life. 
they seek to impose certain values on you and supplant your own rational process. The message is pretty clear. Smoking is bad and you will not do it. And your own considerations are, are irrelevant. And this might seem like a silly example because the weight of evidence is pretty obviously on the side of government's view that smoking is detrimental to your health. And as rational beings, don't we all seek to live our lives in accordance with reality? And on a certain sense, the answer to that is yes. But as rational beings, it's also important that we arrive at our own conclusions because otherwise we don't actually know what right or wrong is. We just have to accept the perception of others and trust that their judgment of what's right and wrong is the correct one. And that, first of all, is collectivism. And second of all, it harkens back to that pre-Magna Carta era of, of government and the view that the king alone determined what was right or wrong and empiricism be damned. And this destroys the egalitarianism on which free society is supposed to be based because those in charge are free to think for themselves and come to their own conclusions and then those over whom they have power are left simply to accept and follow the judgment of others and be punished if they fail to do so. So somewhat paradoxically, uh, tying government policy to empiricism actually reduces it in society because it means that the majority of people are not free to follow the empiric process. And that means that you effectively are no longer master of yourself. Your internal self is not free to reason and to make judgments because those conclusions might be wrong with a capital W. In fact, you may not even be able to discern right and wrong for yourself. Your right and wrong might be totally out of whack with another person's perception of the same thing because you might associate different values with right and wrong. And that means that you can't be trusted to decide what's in your own best interest. Your best interests are determined by others. And importantly here, your interests are then subsumed by the interests of others because you certainly then don't have a right to pursue any actions you want to because it might have, govern have harmful consequences for others. And government can then reinterpret that as a part of its mandate to protect individual rights. And that mandate becomes not just... Uh, reason to protect the actions that infringe upon the rights of others, but to protect the general interests of its citizens and step in any time harm might conceivably be done. Which also means that you lose the ability to determine whether harm is being done to yourself. Others are instead outraged on your behalf, even if you might necessarily not be outraged yourself. And in this way, you really lose your ability to control your internal self. Obviously, government can't reach into your head and stop you from thinking certain things, but it can take away your sense of agency, your autonomy, and make these entities that are external to you and to your thought process. And this is really a problem because property is the most fundamental form of freedom rights require somebody to own them. 
and property therefore starts with the self with sovereignty over your own heart and mind and it's then extended outwards to the things you create and alter with your labor and your talent and all of this in accordance with your reason and your own perception of value. All right, third and final idea to flesh out. And this is a one I haven't fully come to terms with myself yet. So we're going to do a fun little real-time thought experiment window into the way my thought process works. But thought experiments are fun. So bear with me while we go through this. And here's the question that's currently sitting on my computer screen, staring constantly back at me. Are anarchy and a state of nature synonymous? And if you're familiar with social contract theory, this is a question that is more complex than it might seem. Because it requires determining exactly what we mean when we say state of nature. And this might naturally seem like it just means no government. And that's true in a certain sense. But the question then is, what is the characteristics of that um, governmentless state? And Locke certainly thinks you have chaos. Uh, you still have, according to Locke, all the rights in that state of nature that you have in society, but there's no way to secure them, which is why you create government. And anarchy in the Lockean sense means chaos. Whereas Rousseau, on the other hand, sees anarchy as more amenable to the human condition because natural man to him is a desirable state. Natural man doesn't have any sense of right or wrong, which unfortunately essentially leads to an acceptance of hedonistic behaviors that Locke certainly doesn't think are natural. He says reason is innate to man and that reason tells man not to infringe upon the rights of others, even though there isn't necessarily any government body that can step in and enforce that absolutely. But Rousseau also says that man's nature is subject to perfectibility. And this means he's molded by the environment in which he lives. So things like government impose conditions on him, which leads to inequality and makes him unhappy. So for Rousseau, a state of nature is desirable, while for Locke it isn't. And both seem to suggest that this state of nature is an anarchic state because there's no central body that controls and regulates human behavior. Exactly what the nature of that state is and what the nature of man living within it is, is a little bit more in doubt. But if you live outside of government, does that mean you're going to live a life of chaos and uncertainty? Because it seems to me that the reason Locke talks about as being innate to man is going to lead to internal regimentation. Rousseau talks about the drive for self-preservation, and I think he's correct in saying that this is among the most fundamental drives that human beings have. And to me, it's really one of the few constants of human nature. I don't like to talk about human nature because I see individuals who are all primarily different in their characters. And I don't think you can talk about things that are determinative of people, how people behave, unless you're talking about really fundamental drives like the drive to preserve yourself. 
But if you connect that to the power of reason, surely that means you're going to order your life in a way that is conducive to your continuing existence. Now, not only are you not going to do things that anger your neighbors and might lead them to retaliate against you, which puts your self-interest and your continued existence in jeopardy, but it seems to me that you're then going to look to alliances you might form with your neighbors so that your existence is not is not only insured for a much longer period of time because you're essentially doubling your ability to produce and to produce goods that help to secure your bodily needs so that you don't go hungry, you don't starve to death, those kinds of things. But there's another type of survival, and this is the ability to thrive, which is not only about making your existence more comfortable, but the idea that access means you can survive for a longer period of time. It's insurance against disaster and the idea that if you're a farmer and you have a really good bountiful harvest one year, you preserve that. So if the next season the frost wipes out all of your crops and you don't produce anything, it's okay because you have the previous year's bounty stored away and you're not going to starve to death. And that's desire for excess and comfort and the ability to hedge oneself against the vicissitude and infortunes of the natural world, which we can only control to a certain extent, seems to me that is conducive to banding together with others to produce things that you by yourself could not. And there's a great quote I love, which is actually from a James Fenimore Cooper novel, which speaks to this. And it says, a community of hazard makes a community of interest, whether a person or property composes the stake. Perhaps a literal reasoner might add, as each is conscious the condition and fortunes of his neighbors are indexes of his own, they acquire value from their affinity to self. So essentially what this means is, if you set up a farm with your neighbor, you have an interest to deal fairly with that neighbor and not uh, use him and uh, then cast him aside because your good is now tied to your neighbor's good. And this is an alliance you both, using your reason, have decided to enter. And you're able to produce more with your neighbor, then you are alone. And both of you benefit from that. And so it seems to me, perhaps in consideration of this, that a state of nature is not so anarchic. There are very compelling natural reasons to treat people fairly and to enter into relationships with people that are to your own mutual benefit. Much in the same way, that you as a consumer go out and enter into trade relationships with the businesses that you patronize because you believe that you are getting fair value from them ex in exchange for the money that you pay them. And it seems to me that this process would still exist in a state of nature, even though we don't have the same regulatory bodies, obviously, and the same 
um, sense that someone is watching over us to keep us fair. It seems to me that there are natural reasons to treat fairly with one another. And I don't think that in view of this, a state of nature is necessarily going to be anarchic. Or perhaps a better way to put that is a state of nature might be anarchic in the sense that you have no government, but I don't think anarchy is necessarily chaos. I think um, the reason which is innate to man and the preservation instinct which is innate to man are naturally going to lead to the rise of 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 certain regimented process. And of course, anytime we talk about social contract theory, all we're doing is a thought experiment anyway, since it has no basis in the actual development of society. And anyone who talks about man in that kind of uh, governmentless condition is projecting their own ideas and perceptions onto what are effectively characters and not actual humans who might live in that state of nature because we have no basis of comparison because all of our experience is from society of different forms. But I still think it's a fun thought experiment nonetheless and hopefully you do too. And on that thought I think we're going to put this podcast to arrest. So for myself and for the politics of discretion, have a wonderful holiday season. Thank you so much for patronizing us and for interacting with us. And we look forward to continuing to grow and to interact with you in the new year. Happy Musings.